Hello, and welcome to the Legion Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mann. In this episode, I'll be discussing the Legion of Superheroes for DC Comics. This is Legion Spotlight number six, and now that we've completed our two-episode kind of look back at a few issues that gave some origins of Superboy, Supergirl, and various Super Pets and whatnot, and a few other things I missed, we're going to be continuing from where we left off in Legion Spotlight number three, which was April 1962, and reading a couple more issues with the Legion of Superheroes. Let's get going. Next up is Superman number 152, The Robot Master. This is written by Jerry Siegel. We got art by Kurt Swan. This was published in April 1962, cover price of 12 cents. Now this story is the lead story. It's only nine pages, not that long. Part of the original Legion continuity. And I'm going to be honest, there's... It's not that deep of a story, to be honest. It's, it's not bad. It's enjoyable. It's Kurt Swan art, so man, hard to go wrong with that. He was still the de facto Superman artist when I first started reading the comics and stuff in the late 70s, early 80s and whatnot. Phenomenal artist, so hard to go wrong with that. But this story starts out with an all-too-common plotline of Clark Kent having to protect his secret identity as Superman. He accidentally stubs his toe and he's like, oh, I've got to pretend I'm hurt or Lois will suspect I'm secretly Superman. And I'm like, really? I just, I'm, I'm not a fan of that, but... The next page just goes bonkers on that, because it's like, oh, he's twisted his ankle. Lois is like, yeah, just shut up, I'm writing. And he's like, well, this is kind of unsympathetic. And of course, he hadn't expected them back. They were supposed to be off at some conference or whatever. And Lois is finishing up a story of, you know, Superman's secret identity is reporter Clark Kent. And he's like, you can't print this. And Lois and Jimmy are both like, oh, you've had your fun fooling us. Now it's our turn from f- for some fun. And we also know that Supergirl is Linda Lee Danvers and such. And Clark, this is where the story just takes a weird turn for me. Clark's like, you know, you can't do that. If, you know, stand where you are. I'll use my heat vision. First off, heat vision, not the heat from his x-ray vision. Two, you're trying to convince them you're not Superman and your threat is to use Superman's heat vision. This doesn't quite make sense to me. And then in the next panel, he actually burns the story, thereby kind of proving he's Superman. And I'm like, the logic here eludes me, but okay. Lois takes another copy of the story into Perry and such, and it becomes pretty evident they're all going on this. His identity's out of the bag, so he's going to come clean with them or whatever. But then he realizes, wait, my friends wouldn't do this, x-rays them, and realizes they're robot imitations. And it's like, Okay, uh, robot technology was pretty pretty good in these days, even though there are, it looks like, timers and all kinds of all kinds of weirdness where the machinery is versus where I would have expected it to be for a robot of, of humanoid proportions. But anyways, these robots collapse. Superman realizes something is up. He's got to investigate this. So he's heading off to the fortress. He calls Supergirl to come help him. Because his hands are, are kind of full, you know, with this... Uh, he, I guess he built a platform to, to put the inanimate robots on. I would love to know what somebody thought if they saw Superman flying by 
with the key staff of the Daily Planet comatose on this platform. Anyways, probably thought he was going to go save them somehow. We've got to have a little bit of expository dialogue of the giant key, which is often disguised as an airplane marker to open up the fortress. I, personally, I love the key. I think it's cool, but does Supergirl really need to explain that to Superman? It's his fortress. Anyways, they get in there. Looks like the robots aren't, you know, filled with explosives or anything, but who is this robot master that built them, and what is the game plan? And the robots turn on again and start exploring the fortress. And Superman and Supergirl are just kind of following around behind them, watching as they go to the lowest lane room. Because at this point in Superman's mythology, in the fortress, he had a room devoted to each of his friends. Because he's publicly known to hang out with Lois, Perry, Jimmy, and Clark. So Lois, robot, goes to the lowest room, and, you know, are they friends? Are they lovers? And they're trying to figure all this out. Because... The robots know who they're impersonating, but maybe not everything about them. They go to the Jimmy Olsen room, and the Jimmy's like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Superman's a big fat pal of, of the guy I'm impersonating. You know, they go to the, the Perry White room and such. They get to the, the Clark Kent room, and it's like, oh, how clever is Superman to have a room for Clark? Because if somebody had found the fortress, all, all the other friends except Clark, they might deduce he's Superman. But then the robots start to get into a fight as to who means more to Superman, Jimmy, Lois, or Perry. And of course, the Clark robot realizes, well, Clark is Superman, so it kind of doesn't matter. The other robots duke it out and basically destroy themselves. And at this point, the story takes another weird turn of apparently Supergirl and Superman need to, to go to sleep while the Clark Kent robot is just, you know, pretending to recharge his batteries or something. And I'm like, okay. But at this point, the Clark Kent robot is gathering stuff out of the remains of the other robots that are in lead tubes that Superman couldn't figure out. And this is all a Trojan horse kind of plan. And being a robot, the Clark robot is strong enough to, to pick up the key, which, okay, this key is like super heavy. So not just is this a robot, but a fairly strong one. Opens it up so the robot master can enter. And then... Superman, Supergirl get woken up by the, the loud alarm. It's like, oh, here, you know, they get to meet the Robot Master. And it turns out to be the Legion of Superheroes. Specifically, Lightning Lad, Cosmic Boy, Saturn Girl, Brainiac 5, Chameleon Boy, and Sun Boy. Now, keep in mind, there's another four members of the Legion. Why they're not part of this, I don't know. But then Saturn Girl goes and explains that they came back in time yesterday to get these robots out there so they could basically get into the fortress for a surprise. Cosmic Boy whips out a pictocaster, which is essentially a movie projector, and it's showing footage of the uh, uh, arrival of Supergirl, which Superman deduces they filmed off the, the screen of their time scope, etc., etc., and it turns out that this is the latest anniversary of the day Supergirl landed on Earth, and the Legion wanted to come celebrate that. And basically, they had brought busts of the Legion, well, those six members of the Legion, as well as Superman and Supergirl, just to kind of celebrate it and such. And that the whole thing was they needed to put these robots in place so they could get into the fortress for the surprise, because how else could they get into the fortress? Of course, I'm thinking... Time Sphere? Why couldn't you just time travel back into the fortress? I mean, you know where it is. I don't know. The whole thing was a little 
wonky. And this is another one where the Legion is playing a prank, this time on Superman, but that was their excuse of the only way they could get the ghosts for Supergirl into the Force, etc. I'm not a huge fan of the Legion playing pranks on the L's. I mean, they've done that a few times already. And it's like, okay, I mean, this, as far as key events go, there's like nothing here. There's no major event. You could skip this story. Not a big deal. It's not a bad story. Just a little nonsensical. Uh, there were a couple of things that I hadn't realized had happened between the last Supergirl story I read and this one. But in Action Comics 279, Supergirl was adopted by Fred and Edna Danvers, which is why she's now Linda Lee Danvers versus Linda Lee. Those two characters, her uh, adopted parents, do show up in a panel in this story. Not a big deal. Probably not something I'm going to circle back to at this point, but at some point I might because I'm, I'm mildly curious. Again, we get six members of the Legion showing up for really, you know, two pages of a, a nine-page story to basically say, yep, you know, congratulations for your anniversary or whatever for Supergirl. Now, what's kind of weird is in one of the last panels, there's six Legionnaires in silhouette or whatever, but unless Cosmic Boy has, like, shape-shifted into... Like, it looks like a girl with a ponytail. I don't know who one of those silhouettes is supposed to be. Doesn't matter. I'm also curious who the other four Legionnaires are at the time. But, again, doesn't matter. A fun nine-page kind of throwaway story. If you're into the Legion, maybe you want to check this out. It's certainly not essential reading by, by my count. But once again, that's the Robot Master from Superman 152. Next up is Action Comics 288, The Man Who Made Supergirl Cry. Writer is Leo Dorfman, artist is Jim Mooney. This was published in May 1962. It's a 12-page story, and that includes a cover page which kind of previews a story aspect, but isn't part of the story itself. And I think in the last issue I talked about, I was thinking her foster father's name was Fred. Here it seems to be Robert. I guess it's Robert. I honestly don't know. I am not all that familiar with this era of Supergirl. This starts out as a fairly, I guess, standard Supergirl story of the era. It's her foster parents' anniversary. She wants to do something nice for them. So while she's making some handmade gifts and stuff from what's lying around the house, a fugitive from justice has escaped and winds up in pretty short order at their front door. He's faking an injury, but that's really just to hide the fact he's got a, you know, handcuff on his wrist or whatever. Mysteriously, Supergirl's foster father is is exhibiting extrasensory perception or something. He's hearing a voice telling him that this guy they've invited into the house is really a crook and is going to steal stuff. So he tells Linda... She's like, ah, I'll check him over with the x-ray vision, discovers the handcuff, the knife, but the guy decides to grab the shotgun on the wall, because, sure, have a shotgun on the wall. Supergirl basically convinces him it's loaded with blanks, even though it really wasn't, and her dad gets a drop on the crook, the police come by, whatever, but suddenly it's like, oh, the dad has extrasensory perception, what's up with that? Well, when he gets to work later, he gets a, a telepathic command to make Supergirl cry and to save her tears. It's like, okay, don't know why. 
we get a quick side story of Supergirl stopping some helicopter bandits while Superman's away. Really, it's a couple of panels that are just there to, to give some additional action. She comes home and her souvenir case has been smashed. Well, we know from the intervening panel, it was her foster father who did that based on these commands. She, of course, breaks out into tears. We get a nice commentary of, I mean, she's one of the strongest people on earth, but she's still a teenage girl. So he catches the tears in a handkerchief, which he then puts in a airtight bell jar so the tears won't evaporate and is getting commands to keep doing this. And one of those commands is to use this blue space jewel and put that under her pillow. Well, this, I don't know what kind of jewel this is, it basically causes her subconscious to kind of, I guess, go into hyperdrive or something. And she basically has a nightmare recounting the explosion of Krypton, how Argo City, the entire city it seems like now, survived that, how they had to lead line the ground to protect them from the kryptonite, how years later there was the meteor storm, she got rocketed off, all of that stuff. Basically, she's reliving the trauma of her origin while her foster father there is, again, collecting her tears. And we've got another attempt at that when he claims that her foster mother died in a car accident. And as he's doing that, in comes the foster mother because she just came back soon. He plays it off as, well, it must have been a prank call. But because Supergirl was afraid her, her foster mother had died, she's crying tears of joy, which he then goes and collects. And it's basically coming out at this point that Jax Ur and two other unnamed Phantom Zone villains are pooling their telepathic might to send him these messages, because he's able to hear them now. And that by combining these super tears with a particular chemical formula, it will tear a hole in the Phantom Zone big enough for one or two of them to escape, which they can then go collect more and break other people out of the Phantom Zone. I'm like, okay, the joy of having a home chemistry lab and, you know, alien science, I guess. They do this, and it's like, oh, it's working. We've got this hole in the Phantom Zone. But they're like, wait, let's not go out there. Maybe Superman has something that'll detect this. But ah, Monel is here, Hansor Legion connection, and they send Monel out first. And Monel's like, well, I can't leave the Phantom Zone. There's lead out there. It'll kill me. Like, well, who cares? You're expendable to us. So he gets booted out and quickly kind of runs away because, uh, you know, doesn't want to encounter lead. And Jack Sewer's like, okay, I'm going to go out, get some more super tears, and get the rest of you guys out. Supergirl, who is out on patrol, comes back, sees him threatening her foster father, and it's like, you know, you've you've got to cry or, you know, I'll hurt your father. She's like, well, I'm not gonna. And basically, Jaxor decks her father. At this point, Monel has come back with green kryptonite, because that's what he went off to go get, figuring this way he can force Jaxor back into the Phantom Zone, which is exactly what he does. And then basically, as he's heading back into the Phantom Zone, because he can't stay out, lead will kill him, he throws the kryptonite off into space. And Supergirl is like, oh, well, you're just the same self-sacrificing friend to her that he was to Superboy. She then vaporizes the chemical formula or whatever for the thing that would cause the breach in the Phantom Zone. And apparently the blow that Jack Sewer did to her foster father kind of knocked out the extrasensory abilities he had. 
I'm not going to say this story makes a ton of sense. It's not bad. It's not great. This whole, you know, Phantom Zone villains trying to escape. They've tried that a number of times. Typically, something like this would have been done with, I guess, Jewel Kryptonite. Uh, well, not typically, but at one point, at least, it would have been done later with Jewel Kryptonite versus this whole methodology in terms of a way to focus their mental energies out of the zone into something. Really, I included this story because we've got Monel here as a uh, a quick cameo. He's in for like the last two pages of the story. It's not a major appearance, but kind of fun to see him still get used. This is from really, I guess, both his point of view and Supergirl's point of view before he joined the Legion, because I don't think he's a member of the Legion. Oh, he's not as far as we've seen yet, but I know he'll become one. So completely skippable issue, but I thought it was kind of cool because I'm a fan of Monel. He's He's a fun character. And again, the fact that this story states that all of Argo City escaped versus like just a block or so, which we'd seen in the original telling of her origin and stuff, I thought was kind of interesting as well. So once again, that's The Man Who Made Supergirl Cry from Action Comics 288. Next up is Action Comics 289 and Superman's Super Courtship. This is written by Jerry Siegel with art by Jim Mooney. Came out in June 1962. It's a 12-page story. And this is part of the Adult Legion continuity. So while the Superman, Supergirl stuff is still in their main continuity, the Legion side of it is, it's like 10 years further in the future than we typically see the Legion. And I think even here, there's a couple of things that clearly kick that stuff into its own continuity versus that of the original Legion. Now, this whole story is Supergirl deciding to set up the perennial bachelor of Superman up with, with somebody. She tries Helen of Troy, she tries Saturn Woman, she tries uh, Superwoman, and we'll get to who she is in a minute. None of it works out, and it's like, none of it should. I mean, this is, this is the let's try some matchmaking and wackiness ensues kind of story. Now, the first thing that kind of threw me on this was the whole thing starts out with Linda, Supergirl's alter ego, and her family watching some TV. It's apparently some, you know, romantic comedy or something of the guy gets the girl and she's like, oh, Superman never will. How sad. The part that got me, though, was her father is called Fred here. The last story, it was Robert. It's like, does she have two families here? What's going on? Or were they just a little inconsistent? So I'm a little puzzled by all that, but, you know, mistakes happen. Now, there's a lot going on of basically Supergirl dreaming of this idyllic future for Superman and deciding to to put it into play. We get a couple of pages where she goes back to ancient Troy to basically kind of force a meeting of Superman and Helen of Troy, thinking that'll go well. And of course, it doesn't. It basically winds up with, you know, them getting kind of, I don't say chased out of town, but Supergirl gets a lot of recognition which kind of upsets Helen, and they're like, yeah, get out of here. And it's like, okay. At which point, Supergirl gets the bright idea of, hmm, you know, maybe Saturn Girl or Phantom Girl, one of them would grow up to be a perfect wife for Superman. Let's go visit them. So they do, and Superman realizes they're going about 10 years further than they normally do. It's Christmas time there, and they're hanging with, you know, Lightning Man, Cosmic Man, Phantom Woman, etc., and uh, it's like, oh, yeah, we weren't sure if you were going to come, but we've got presents for you guys as Cosmic Man or whatnot. 
And at this point, it's kind of looking like Cosmic Man and Phantom Woman are maybe a thing. It's not clearly spelled out that way, but they're hanging around like next to each other the whole time, so maybe. But Superman and Supergirl kind of dart off to go get and make presents for everyone, and they get this anti-gravity meteorite and basically turn it into flight belts. You just need to put a little piece of it under your belt, and it reacts to mental commands and replace the uh, jetpacks and stuff. So I'm curious if in the next Legion story, if they're still using the jetpacks, if they've moved on to the flight belts, or kind of what's going on there. But the inventing of the flight belts for the adult Legion, again, another thing that kind of clearly kicks it out of continuity, because they wind up with flight rings long before they become adults. But Superman sees Satter Woman, says, wow, she's grown up and turned quite beautiful. Supergirl throws a uh, mistletoe as a dart, which causes Superman to, oh, well, there's this old custom. So he kisses her, like, a time or two, at which point Lightning Man comes in and a little, you know, unamused by all of that, at which point they realize, yeah, maybe we've overstarted our welcome. Time to go back to the past. Supergirl still hasn't given up. And Superman's like, well, you know, he would want somebody as wonderful as Supergirl is. But cousins can't marry on Krypton, although apparently in certain countries on Earth at this point they could. And Supergirl's like, well, that gives me an idea. Goes to the supercomputer and basically finds a planet that has effectively a duplicate of her on that planet. And it winds up being Luma Lenai, I don't know, something of, of Star Rail or whatever. Uh, this is her first and I think maybe only appearance. She's got a costume fairly similar to Supergirl's, except it's white with a green cape and gloves. The S emblem's a little bit different. Superman and the Superwoman hit it off beautifully. It's like, if you like it on Earth, we'll get married. They, they f- start flying to Earth, but the minute she gets within the solar system, the yellow sun basically starts poisoning her like kryptonite would for Superman. And it's like, yeah, this isn't going to work out. I mean, Superman offers to stay on this other planet, but it's like, no, Earth needs him, and so much for that. And the story kind of ends with Supergirl both having sworn off, you know, playing Cupid and such, but then as she's in her history book reading about Cleopatra, she's like, ooh, that might work for Superman. She's like, no, no. So it leaves the door open to another kind of matchmaking story later with the, she probably won't do it, but she could. So from the Adult Legion, we see Phantom Woman, Cosmic Man, Chameleon Man, Sun Man, and I think Triplicate Woman. It looks like her. But again, as an adult, she would have been Duo Damsel or Duo Woman or I don't know. Sun Man never really says anything in the story, neither does Chameleon Man. The main ones who talk are Phantom Woman, Cosmic Man, Saturn Girl, and Lightning Man. Not a bad story, not a great story. I think if you're not really in for the Adventures of the Legion as adults, you know, if you're into that, this is worth doing. Otherwise, I would say it's, you know, completely extraneous and you can easily skip it without missing anything for the the main Legion continuity. So once again, that's Superman's Super Courtship from Action Comics 289. Next up is Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 62, with Superman's Phantom Pal. This is written by Leo Dorfman with Kurt Swan on the art, released in July 1962. It's a nine-page story. And it starts with Jimmy 
cleaning up his trophy room, which has all manner of wacky stuff. And he comes across an empty bottle. It's like, ah, can't remember what's in it. There's just some faint vapor. May as well chuck it. Well, this turns out to have been the bottle that the elastic serum from Professor Potter was in. And when he's at the Daily Planet a little later, he realizes he's now got the stretching ability and such. He's like, well, I guess I inhaled enough of the vapor to give me elastic lad powers for, I don't know, 24 hours or something. So... Perry sends him out of, well, let's go do a day in the life of Elastic Lad story. And at this point, Jimmy is known for having these kinds of wacky adventures. And people are realizing, oh, Jimmy Olsen's become Elastic Lad again. And he gets into a couple of things here and there. You know, he's fishing a football out of a drainage hole and gets run over by a runaway steamroller, flattened. But, you know, hey, it's not a problem because he's Elastic Lad. He then comes across the Notorious Dagger Gang. They were uh, circus knife throwers before they turned to crime, and they look, you know, fairly cliche. You know, orange vests with tons of daggers. I don't know, they look like they're rejects from a bad film. Anyways, he basically snakes his way through a coil of boiler pipe, using that as armor as he's rolling down a hill to go knock him over and such, and of course they can't hit him with the knives because it bounces off the pipe. Yeah, interesting. He then has to go save a plane from trying to land, but the Metropolis Airport is, I guess, flooded or something, so he's got to go tell them to go to the next landing field. Now, while he's up in the stratosphere doing that, he sees this hole in the sky reaching into nowhere or whatever. So he's like, well, let's let's go look at this, because, of course, it's Jimmy. Why not? He basically goes through that breach and winds up into what he quickly realizes is the Phantom Zone. So he's able to go kind of see, you know, what Perry's life like is at home, what's going on with Lucy Lane, Lois's sister, and then he encounters a couple of the guys in the Phantom Zone. We've got Jack Sewer, who we had from the Supergirl story issue or two back, story or two back. We've got Professor Vaxoff, I don't know, V.A. K-O-X, and Dr. Zadu, and Jack Sewer, I recall. The other two, not off the top of my head. I'm sure I've encountered them at some point. And, you know, Jimmy, of course, wants nothing to do with them because he knows they're the, the worst of the worst, but he's got nothing to worry about because Monel is there to keep him safe and that, you know, you can't really get hurt here in the Phantom Zone. Monel explains he was a friend of Superman and when Superboy sent him here to prevent him from dying from an incurable illness, yada yada. So we get, you know, a line or two of dialogue to give the essential of, of who Monel is. But then the, the supervillains basically say, you know, you can learn Superman's secret identity and basically show him, hey, watch Superman. He's starting to change into whoever he is. At which point, Jimmy's got, you know, the opportunity to see that. And the Phantom Zone villains are like, well, it's just a matter of time before you betray Superman. It'll Something will slip, etc. You know, we've tricked you. And when Jimmy is writing up his, his article about his day as Elastic Lad and how he visited the Phantom Zone, Lois is surprised there's no mention of who Superman is. And Jimmy's like, yeah, I had that chance, but I, I closed my eyes, I turned my head, I didn't do it. And of course, Clark's there at this point. A little worried of, he knows his identity, he's going to have to go scrap it and start somewhere else. So, of course, he's curious, why didn't Jimmy reveal the identity? And he's like, I'm Superman's best friend. Not going to trade that for a scoop. 
and basically goes on how through hypnosis, the truth serum, or any number of ways, the information might have gotten forced out of him. And that Lois and, and Clark should be ashamed of themselves for, for wanting to risk Superman's safety for their curiosity. And, I mean, Jimmy really puts them in their place. And this just goes to show, you know, what a good friend Jimmy is to Superman, which is, of course, the whole point of the story. So, when at the Jimmy Olsen fan club, Jimmy's, like, signaling Superman to come by. Superman's like, yep, I'm here, good friend, etc. And, of course, the Phantom Zone villains are seen in the last panel or two just kind of, ah, our plan didn't work sort of a thing. Now, I'm curious if this whole has any bearing on the one that was created in the story of the man who made Supergirl cry. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. It doesn't seem like it'd be in the right spot because this is over Metropolis, but apparently holes in the Phantom Zone can happen. Is this essential reading? Absolutely not. I included it because of the Monel appearance and the Elastic Light appearance. Between the two, I thought it was kind of cool. We've got two people that will be either a future member in Monel's case or reserve member in Jimmy's case of the Legion actually meeting in the 20th century, which is kind of cool. So once again, that's Superman's Phantom Pal from Superman's Pal Jimmy Olsen, number 62. Next up is Action Comics 290 with Supergirl's Super Boyfriends. Now, in this story, this is after Supergirl has gone public, and there is now kind of a Supergirl mania going around, not just on Earth, but also in the bottled city of Kandor, with some of the girls there being huge fans of, of Supergirl. Now, the Legion connection here is a little minimal. Basically, Phantom Girl drops by for a few minutes using the time projector versus a time bubble, but it's not working right, so she can only remain for a few minutes. And basically, she's just there to drop off a figurine of Supergirl that Phantom Girl had made to go with, with Supergirl's collection of the rest of the Legion. Gives it to her, basically pops back, because again, with this time projector, just kind of teleports you in time, I guess. Right after Phantom Girl leaves, Supergirl recognizes the tingling that occurs with red kryptonite. And red kryptonite can affect Kryptonians unpredictably. Each piece works differently, but always the same effect, and usually lasts for, you know, 24 or 48 hours. Now, in this case, what happens is it gives Supergirl the ability to make others super with a kiss. And she quickly realizes that the figurine was, was accidentally made out of red kryptonite, which is how this happens. Now, she realizes later that it's with a kiss. This is after she kisses her mom, who gets superpowers. Her and a boyfriend are going to a museum. There's this thing of, oh, whoever kisses in front of this totem pole will be happy forever. So they kiss. Supergirl has to go head over to help Lori Lamaris, uh, which is one of the mermaid underwater people in the DCU at this point. She encounters Jero, whom she's known before. He's a merman. And she kisses him because it's his birthday. Then she gets home, realizes her mom has superpowers, and puts two and two together as to what's going on. Well, actually, after her mom has it, in terms of super speed, super strength, x-ray vision, and then she realizes her boyfriend from the she kissed at the museum, also has powers, that's when she realizes what's happened, and maybe it had a delayed effect or whatever. So, basically, her boyfriend is convinced that the meteor they saw at the museum was what gave him powers, and therefore it must have given Linda powers as well, 
So Supergirl's able to fly around out of costume in part of this issue. She then realizes that Jero has superpowers too, heads to Atlantide, which is the Mer people's underwater city, not to be confused with Aquaman's Atlantis, and they can't help her cure this kind of kryptonite kiss problem. Jero, now that he has powers, wants to basically be her boyfriend. She's like, yeah, I'm not ready for a steady boyfriend, although she kind of has one with this other guy. And quickly, Jero and this other guy meet up, realize they have powers, and, you know, hang out for a little bit. And they save a couple of people in the process, but Supergirl's like, you gotta be careful, these powers aren't gonna last forever, and if they disappear at the wrong time, that could get you killed. And sure enough, these two guys disregard that, are flying over a volcano, a live one, when their powers cut out, but before Supergirl can get there to save them, they're saved. And they quickly realize they're saved by small Supergirls. And by small, I mean like, you know, three, four inch tall. This is the first appearance of the Supergirl Emergency Squad from Candor, which is why, of course, they'd set up the whole, hey, the Candor girls are crazy about Supergirl and stuff. They all donned blonde wigs, friction-proof Supergirl costumes that they've got all set up for this, and they basically use a rocket ship to get up towards the cork in the bottle city of Candor, get that kind of pushed aside, and when they emerge, they get the superpowers in Earth's atmosphere, so they're able to fly over and help out and such, save the two boys who realize, yeah, well, maybe we should have, you know, taken Supergirl's advice and not waited for the powers to cut out at an inconvenient and potentially deadly time. So other than Phantom Girl literally dropping by using this time projector, and I don't know if we'll ever see that again, not that it worked reliably, but anyways, dropping by this statue, which happens to have red kryptonite in it, unspeknown to Phantom Girl, there's not really a strong Legion connection here. Now, at the end, Supergirl winds up covering the uh, figurine with lead paint so it won't affect Crypto or Superman or whatever, but she does keep the figure. And again, Red Kryptonite has its own rules at this point. It's had her its effect on Supergirl, so she's now kind of immune to that piece. But again, it could affect other Kryptonians and such. So not any sort of pivotal story for Supergirl. Does have the first appearance of the Supergirl Emergency Squad. Not that they're really, as far as I can recall, a big thing later on and such, but, you know, this is where they came from. So, once again, that's Supergirl's Superboyfriends from Action Comics 290. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.